We are back. You know, we like Sam Keen so much, we had him on four times, and the same can be said about our next guest, Mary Roach. On show number 564, she made what I believe was her third of four appearances on Radio Parallax. She's been called one of America's most engaging science writers, but Mary Roach isn't fooling us. We know her to be one of our foremost comedians, who just happens to express herself writing about topics with a scientific bent. Now, it's true, the reader will always learn something from today's guest. In fact, thanks to the author's dogged pursuit of the subject matter at hand, inevitably with her direct participation, the reader will learn a lot from her books. But we dare say that the educational process is not why Mary Roach's works are bestsellers. No, it's because they adhere to being amusing and entertaining while they inform. We've been privileged to speak to her twice before about Bonk, the curious coupling of science and sex, as well as Packing for Mars. Her current book is titled Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, and we're keen to journey down that 30-foot tube that processes our food so long as we have Mary as a tour guide. We're delighted to be able to say, Mary Roach, welcome back to Radio Parallax. Oh, well, thank you. It's lovely to be back. (laughs) Mary, UCD was uh, once the University of California's farm, so it's not too surprising that our institution uh, figures in uh, your opening chapter on taste, which took you to a woman who has trained our very own olive tasters. Can you tell us about tasting and smelling and their interaction? Yes, uh, Sue Langstaff, who was, uh, was pulling together an olive oil flavor panel, uh, I stumbled onto the announcement for tryouts for <laughs> this uh, panel and uh, humiliated myself, uh, made it clear very quickly that I have uh, no aptitude for uh, tasting and uh, judging olive oils. Uh, uh, but, it would, but I learned a tremendous amount because I, didn't, I wasn't aware to what extent the nose is involved with enjoyment of food. Mm-hmm. Something like 80% of what we call flavor is uh, taking... It takes place in the nose. Uh-huh. You, you could, if you were a wine taster, you could, you could throw away your tongue and still do basically a, well, a reasonable job of it because it's all these uh, aroma molecules that are wafting up into the nose from your mouth. There's an opening into the nose at the back of the mouth, and so there's these gases that are released when you hold food or wine in your mouth, and it wafts up into the nose, and your uh, olfactory epithelium translates it into all these fabulous uh, things that we call flavors. And um, I I was amazed, because I'm the kind of person that when I taste wine, I basically have two descriptors, uh-huh. yum and yuck. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a sophisticated taster. So, uh, and, and I kind of thought there was a, a, an element of bogusness to uh, when people are able to apply words <laughs> and descriptors to what's going on in their mouths when they're evaluating olive oil or beer or wine, but it's not bogus at all. It's, uh, it's, it's because they've been trained to kind of speak a different language. They can identify these very specific components of what's in their mouth. They can apply an ale. There's black cherry or there's malty or whatever it is. Uh, they, they, le- they learn, it's almost like learning a vocabulary and then being able to uh, read that sentence in your mouth. It's quite astounding. 
Well, Mary, I knew I'd like your book when, when early on you quoted Sue Langstaff as warning you not to equate complexity with equality. And I guess making reference to all those dozen descriptors and wine descriptions, uh, for most of us, that's not so much sensory evaluation as just marketing. And, and I, you know, it tickled me to note that really when most people buy a wine, their evaluation comes from the price on the bottle. Yes, and, and that's not a good way to buy wine. And I'll tell you a story of this is a, a guy named Paul Wagner who teaches wine marketing at Napa Valley College, I believe it is. And he does this for 18 years now. He's done something with his, stu- his students in, in this class. And they are fairly, most of them have a background in wine. They're not neophytes. They know, they know wine. And he takes six wines and he puts them in brown paper bags, which is, a lovely touch, I think. <laughs> so he's hiding <laughs> the labels, basically. And he's got six wines, and two of them are over $50, and one of them is less than $10. And every time, he has, them, he has the students rank them, and for every time for the past 18 years, the highest average ranking goes to the least expensive wine, and the expensive ones score way down at the bottom. This is average ranking. Mm-hmm. So it goes to show you that you can't say that a high price equals quality. Sue Langstaff, she said, wineries that make a $500 bottle of wine have the same problems that wineries as wineries that make a $10 bottle. You can't say that cheap wine is necessarily bad wine. Right. And while it is true that, you, that people who are, have a trained nose can identify a lot of different things that you or I would not be able to, when it gets to like 10 or 15 descriptors on a label, now <laughs> we're heading into the realm of marketing and BS. Yes. Well, you're a bit hard on yourself on the book for not being a stellar olive taster or, or <laughs> appraiser, but uh, there's also a dirty secret in this. Most Americans can't tell good olive oil from bad, and the European exporters, I think, know this. Uh, why is this? Do we have any idea? Yeah, the United States, uh, Sue said, it's a, we're, we're a dumping ground for, <laughs> l- for bad olive oil because we don't know the difference. I mean, I was presented the very first uh, challenge that we were given at the tryouts for the olive oil panel we were given a number of different substances to sniff and identify, like almond, and one of them was olive brine, and one of them was vanilla. Some of them were quite simple. Uh, and one of them, I was very proud to go, hey, this is olive oil. I got that right. <laughs> and I thought, it's, it smells great. This, in fact, it was rancid olive oil. I had no idea. It smelled fine to me. Probably what's in our cupboard right now is, <laughs> is rancid olive oil, partly because yeah. we keep it near the stove, which you're not supposed to do. It's just a matter of exposure and of not um, not spending any time comparing different olive oils and, and learning about them. It's, it's like anything else. You start out knowing very little, and then you, over time, learn more. You, you experience more different olive oils and, and you educate yourself. So we just haven't been educated. It's not, uh, you know, with wines, it's, there's things like there's people go wine tasting, there's wine competitions, there's wine clubs. So, so in this country, wine has, in, in the past 50 years, people's knowledge of wine is, has uh, improved markedly. And with olive oil, we're just at the beginning of that. You're just starting to see olive oil tastings and, and people spending more money on really good olive oil. And, and um, in time, there won't, you won't be able to dump your, your bad olive oil <laughs> in America because we'll know better. Well, I hope so. You took a look at pet foods. You subtitled the chapter, Your Pet is Not Like You, and the chapter certainly proves that. But uh, you really surprised me a little bit with the news that uh, cats, our, our pet cats, unlike, unlike us, they really can't taste sweetness at all. 
That's correct. They they can't, and they can taste things that we can't taste. There's something called uh, pyrophosphates, which are like cat crack. That's how they were described to me. They're, cats will go crazy for this substance. I tried pyrophosphate, and it is almost, it has almost no flavor at all. It does have a little bit of flavor. It doesn't seem like food. It's a strange flavor. Yeah. I can't imagine being wild for that for that flavor, that particular taste. I, uh, but cats love it. And if you use that in uh, a coating on pet food, kibble, mm-hmm. uh, you will be a hit with cats. And it, but it's, uh, uh, I mean, different species different uh, uh, have, have just a totally different experience of taste and, and smell. And, and it's uh, uh, eating... Eating is, is a completely different experience for uh, dogs, for cats, for humans. Dogs are very scent-driven. Dogs are very, uh, they say if you can get a dog to the bowl by scent, uh, you know, the do- if you can get them to the bowl, they'll eat. You know, they, won't even, they won't even stop to taste it. It's just like, <laughs> that smells good, and I am in, and they will <laughs> devour it. Well, uh, our pets seem to know something we humans may have forgotten, that the visceral organ meats uh, that turn up in processed pet foods actually have far more nutritional value than skeletal meat. Yep, that's right. Organ meats are organ meats are in terms of the vitamins and minerals and the nutrients in them. Organ meats are really the best source of nutrition. You, you if you look at pet uh, animals in the wild, if you look at wild dogs or cats, will go first for the viscera of the of their prey. They'll eat the organs first, uh, which makes evolutionary sense. You're yeah, you're going to get the most nutrition from those. And also, there's a lot of flavor. I mean, in the United States, we're kind of unique in the way we shun scary, quote-unquote scary meats. We export the variety meats, they used to be called, yes. uh, the, the brain, the lips, the organs, the feet. All of that goes to countries that are delighted to have it because <laughs> for, to them, that's where the flavor is. Uh, the, you know, dark meat has more, you know, the bone, the blood, all of this adds flavor. And the rest of the world kind of looks at us as insane for eating just the bland white meat <laughs> that yeah. we like to eat. So we, uh, we would do ourselves a favor culturally to be a little less squeamish. Well, I want to thank you for striking a blow for liver and onions in that respect. Uh... Absolutely. <laughs> We're speaking with author Mary Roach about her terrific new book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. I'd have to say, Mary, that the miracle that is saliva tends to get overlooked in, in our lives, but you took some time to outline what it does for us. Can you, can you uh, sort of explain to an unappreciative public uh, what some of those things are? Saliva, it, people tend to think of it as a moistening agent, and that's all. And it does that. It definitely does that. But uh, and when, you, when you chew, no matter what you're chewing, even if it isn't food, your body dutifully produces saliva to help you moisten what you need to swallow and hold it together in a bolus. That's a very basic thing that saliva does, but it's also doing things that I didn't realize until I started writing Gulp, was that it's uh, when you take into your mouth anything acidic, whether it's wine, cola, citrus juice, vinegar, you, if you're paying attention, even a few drops in your mouth, you'll get this gush of saliva coming in, and what that's doing is diluting the acid so that it doesn't to harm your teeth because that, that, that range of pH, that acid range, can literally dissolve your tooth enamel. So saliva is incredibly important for protecting your teeth. It's also got enzymes that are breaking down starch, so there's a little bit of digestion happening right in your mouth as you 
too, and you can you can taste that when you eat bread, and it, it, it after you chew it up, it, it tastes a little sweeter. Yeah, that's because the, the uh, starch is being broken down to simple sugar, and it's it's something happening right in the mouth. I mean, so digestion is happening right away. Not it doesn't even have to get to the stomach before you have a little bit of that. I also love the fact that um, these enzymes, like amylase, which is in saliva. These are also in laundry detergent. When they say enzyme action mm-hmm. in, in a detergent, that these are digestive enzymes. There's lipase that breaks down fat and proteinase breaks down protein. So all, which makes sense because the foods that you're putting in your mouth, you're also dropping in your lap. So to, to break those down, they, uh, the, um, the laundry people use the same enzymes that the body uses. Yeah. Kind of cool. And, and uh, saliva's also got antibacterial uh, factors. It's got, um, it promotes the closure of wounds. And they've done studies in rodents. And I, uh, I, I, I don't know that they've done the exact study in humans, uh, but presumably there's, because uh, in folk medicine, there's long been medicinal uses for human saliva, which seems counterintuitive. You would think it would become infected. But all the stories about human saliva being highly infective are uh, overstated. There was an emergency room journal that looked at human bites and the uh-huh. rate of infection. It was something like one in 52 cases did it become infected if it wasn't uh, treated with antibacterial, antibacterial right. salves or whatever. So it's, it, it is, it, it, saliva gets kind of a bum rap. <laughs> oh, indeed. Um, you talked about texture. That's got an important role in food. And, and I especially loved your line quoting a food scientist for the Gemini astronauts he was quoting some World War II soldiers reacting to the potted meat they were fed as something we could undoubtedly survive on a lot longer than we care to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't. People don't like mush. You, you can tolerate mush for a while. You don't see meatloaf on a lot of menus in restaurants. People like some variety of texture. The mouth is like this guy who gets bored. You know, ice cream. You got a creamy substance. People enjoy throwing something in it, M&M's, Oreo cookies. Mm-hmm. Um, people like sunflower seeds in their salad. People like to mix it up, um, have a little variety. And crispness is also something we humans love, That to something that makes noise when you destroy it in your <laughs> mouth, something crisp. Um, and, and crispness, of course, in, in natural foods, fruits and vegetables, signifies freshness and a lot of nutritional value. So, you know, rather than a mushy, something, a mushy fruit or vegetable isn't going to be as good for you. So it makes sense that we are more drawn to the crisp ones. And, of course, the snack food industry has sort of uh, exploited that preference by making not-so-nutritious foods that have that appealing crispness. Mary, I read a story when I was a kid about a, a sort of a real-life Jonah sailor supposedly swallowed by a whale. Uh, the story was thought of as far-fetched then, but you've pretty much confirmed it was B.S., but mm-hmm. uh, you made up for it by um, revealing that stomachs in general are pretty amazing, and that some of that research brought you back here to UCD. Oh, yeah. I was at UCD for uh, to visit the fistulated cow, one of the fistulated cows, the holy cow, I think the students call <laughs> the, this particular uh, cow. I'm forgetting uh, her number, but uh, she was very cooperative, and I was able to experience what goes on in a rumen, which is uh, it's different than our own stomach. Our own stomach is a gastric juice and enzyme breaking things down, but the, the cow's rumen, it's a bacterial composting vat, and it's huge, and it's hot in there, and it's got these powerful contractions mixing stuff around. It is an 
a, phen- a phenomenal experience to, to put your arm inside the rumen of a cow. And I, I was in up to my shoulder, and I still couldn't touch the bottom <laughs> of that rumen. It's, it's an astounding experience. I, I recommend, <laughs> recommend paying a, a trip over to Ed DePeter's uh, barn and visiting the uh, fistulated cow. I'm sure Ed will appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Sure, come and take a look. They used to do it on picnic day, Mary. They used to pull the plug out, and people used to be able to look inside. I specifically went for the went to go find the fistulated cow a few picnic days ago, and they said, no, no, the animal rights people objected, and now we don't bring it on a picnic day anymore. Sad. Oh, I see. Ed was talking about how uh, the cow, there's sort of a, the story evolved so that people thought it was a cow with a literal window in its side, like like a plexiglass window with a sash and a sill, and you know, screwed into the side of the cow. But it's it's really more like a you know those earlobe plugs that mm-hmm. you see people. It's kind of like that with a plug that you can remove. And uh, once it's once it's healed, it's the cow the cow pays absolutely no mind to it. It's a fairly uh, a simple procedure. But anyway, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that because it's a it's a, it's a tremendous educational opportunity. Well, maybe I will go look up Mr. Mr. Peters or Dr. Peters, see what he's got to say. But uh, you spent some time in the book talking about uh, the use of the alimentary canal as basically a suitcase, uh, most often with criminals. Uh, tell us a bit about what you learned in that in that regard. Yeah, I was over at Avenal State Prison where they have a, a lot of problem with inmates. Who they leave the prison on work detail and they come back in and they tend to smuggle in uh, tobacco and also cell phones, a lot of cell phones and SIM cards and earbuds, and they use their uh, nature's own back pocket for that, which is the rectum. I was interested in speaking with them because it seemed to me like a a, a fitting narrative setting for for the story of the rectum, which is in essence a storage facility. Yeah, I mean, there's there are other things going on in the rectum and colon, of course, but it's a, it's it's not you know, most of the nutrition has already been absorbed from the food, and it's a holding tank. It dries it out and it holds it until you're ready to deposit it in the toilet. So uh, the folks at the the inmates are using the rectum sort of for the purpose for which it evolved, just a slightly different take on it. So I was uh, chatting with one inmate in particular who was, uh, it was very uh, accommodating to, well, in, in many ways accommodating, but he was very generous with his time. He's in for life, so I guess he has plenty of time. Um, so it was, a, it was a fascinating afternoon, and we learned a lot about, uh, we talked about the, the uh, defecation reflex and manually overriding that and how long you can do that and what happens when you do. So it was, a, uh, I have to say, one of the more interesting afternoons I've ever spent. And we certainly recommend that chapter in the book uh, for future, future reference for our, for our listeners. Um, you took a look at some quack medicines that allege we get all these toxins from our colon that goes way back in history, still with us. Uh, talk a bit about that. There was a fad in the, uh, well, the earlier part of the 1900s, a quite pop- popular fad or, or widely held belief in something called auto-intoxication. And, and the theory held that you were absorbing all these awful toxins by holding waste material in your colon, uh, and that if you could speed it through as fast as you could, you would be exposed to fewer toxins and therefore be healthier. And people blamed their own waste. Uh, they blamed every disease imaginable on um, uh, auto-intoxication, uh, in absorbing 
impurities from what's inside you. To the extent that there were endless uh, internal bathing devices, um, syringe, fountain syringes, all manner of laxatives being uh, taken daily for no real reason. Uh, and and in some interesting creative approaches to disproving this. For example, there was one physician who surgically constipated a dog, basically sewed him up briefly for a few days uh, so that all the waste was sitting there. Mm -hmm. And then he took his supposedly now hideously poisoned blood and he injected that in another dog looking to see if there were any of these symptoms of auto-intoxication. So people have applied all manner of uh, interesting experimental approaches (laughs) to disprove this. It's a a very, um, it makes intuitive sense but because we find feces to be smelly and icky and dangerous, and so we don't like the thought of holding it inside us. But there isn't any scientific evidence to show that holding it in for a longer time is going to make you sick. I mean, yeah. anybody, that's not to say constipation is, is an unpleasant thing. And any, anybody who's bound up, there was one doctor who said, anybody who's bound up, if you take a big dump, you're going to feel better. <laughs> so... Um, there's that. That's certainly true, but that's a different than saying um, that you're absorbing deadly toxins from your own feces. Indeed. Well, speaking of the rectum and colon, which is which is not a segue I get to use very often. Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> uh, how little doctors knew about digestion back in the 1800s kind of blows me away. Um, John Garfield, our, our president, survived an assassination attempt in 1881. Probably would have made it, except for his doctors. Among their malpractice was a doc who tried to give him nutritional enemas, which is a rather shocking and terrible tale. Well, yeah. Um, Garfield, after the assassination attempt, President Garfield was unable to keep food down. He, he was vomiting a lot. One can sort of eat backwards to a certain extent. You can absorb some nutrients, glucose and salt and some short, short-chain fatty acids. There's a number of things that you can, but you can absorb that way. So it, it was helpful to a certain extent. You certainly can't go the rest of your life eating that way. And now there's no need to because you can be fed via tube or IV. Uh, but back then, uh, before that was a practice, uh, nutrient enemas were, uh, were done fairly regularly, at, even to the extent that there were, um, there were sort of recipes and prepared uh, foods that you would see in, in uh, medical journals that people were, were putting in that way. You can, you can use the rectum to absorb medication, uh, mm-hmm. drugs, sure. certain hallucinogens, South American hallucinogens that cause a lot of vomiting are, are taken traditionally through the rectum. So uh, eating backwards, is a, it's an interesting, <laughs> interesting topic, to say the least. Well, Mary, you really took uh, some, some medical sleuthing uh, in one of your chapters, investigated the death of the late, great Elvis Presley. Apparently, uh, the king had a medical condition that, that plagued him and contributed to his death. Elvis had horrific constipation. At death, during the autopsy, the, they found the colon was three times the size of the average person's in diameter and was pretty full with a lot of stuff that been, had been stuck there for quite some time. He had a, a very, very difficult time uh, evacuating, yeah. they say. And uh, part of, you know, but he, he was on a lot of prescription drugs that, uh, you know, painkillers slow down the movements of the gut, uh, as do certain psychiatric drugs. So that was surely contributing. There's a question as to whether he may have had a portion of his colon was um, paralytic. There was that the nerves weren't extending the entire way. Yeah. That, that's a genetic condition that some people had. He was never diagnosed with that, though, so it's, it's uh, 
unclear how he ended up with this. With what he, but he had a megacolon, and when you have that condition, it's it's not a healthy functioning colon. You have a terrible problem with constipation, and sometimes what happens is you have what's called defecation-associated sudden death, where you're pushing yeah. too hard, your heart goes into an arrhythmia. Well, it's a chain of events that ends with a fatal heart arrhythmia, and that's what uh, is on the death certificate, on Elvis's death certificate, fatal heart arrhythmia. Well, Mary, you close out the book, and I think we probably should close out our chat today with, with a tale of a medical treatment that works astoundingly well. It's low-tech. It's cheap to perform, saving lives, curing people right and left that have terrible intestinal uh, infections, mm-hmm. but uh, is having some problem getting accepted. Can we talk a bit about, uh, about um, well, <laughs> this, this particular technique of putting a healthy ecosystem from one person into another? Bacteria therapy is the nice way to say it. Uh, <laughs> fecal transplant is another way to say it. I think of it as... Immigration, you've got, well, you've got a whole community of bacteria in a healthy gut, and you're taking a big sam- a sample of those in the form of somebody's waste, and you're, with not a whole lot of processing, taking that and putting it into the colon of somebody who has a very unhealthy collection of bacteria. In particular, C. difficile is a very uh, sinister bacteria. Once it gets a hold in somebody's gut, it's very hard to get rid of and 30,000 people a year die of chronic C. difficile infection, and the fecal transplant is about a 93 or 94% cure rate. It's been practiced for many years. Uh, it's one of the, re- the, the ick factor may be part of it, but also there's no pharmaceutical company that stands to profit from someone else's waste. So there's not, and normally a pharmaceutical company would shepherd the process or the device or the pill through the trials and the FDA approval, the things that are required. So in this case, there's no obvious patron to be <laughs> to be funding the testing and the approval process. So that has kept it uh, sort of uh, outside mainstream medicine as well. Yeah, what what researchers say to you? Some the fact that this works out, I may wind up in the bottom of the river. <laughs> Some, yeah, one of the the researcher that I spoke to because he, he said, you know, pharmaceutical companies don't really want cures; they want long term treatment. They want something somebody has to take every day. They're not interested in something that cures people and doesn't turn a profit. So, yeah, he said, uh, if I end up on the bottom of the river, you'll know why. <laughs> well, there's inevitably far more in any book we can hit upon in an interview, and, and that's your cue, dear listener, that, uh, that if you want to cruise more on the alimentary canal, you need to go out and snag a copy of this book. But, but before you go, Mary, just final question about any changes in your diet or eating habits uh, that came out of the research for this book. Nah, I, I, I ate everything before and I eat everything now. I'm a, I'm a happy eater. Well, fair enough. We've been speaking with Mary Roach, the author of Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. Mary, it's been a great pleasure once again, and, uh, and uh, you might want to just plug that event so you'll be, you'll be done in, in San Rafael. Oh, yes, I will be at um, Old Dominion, is it? University, which is up in uh, Marin, it's Thursday night, I think at 7. It's a free event. It's a Michael Krasny and I in conversation, which should be hilarious and fun. So that's going on Thursday. Well, we'll hope some of our folks will get on Highway 80 and drive down to hear that. I'm sure it'll be worth their while. Mary, thanks again. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. All righty.
right, that about does it. We hope that some of you back in April of 2013 did travel down to hear Mary Roach speaking with Michael Krasny, who was not only a KQED radio legend in the Bay Area, he was also, perhaps even more importantly, a guest on this show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and next week's program, we hope, will be filled with tales of travel. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We will see you next week.